yeah, I think coaching is one of those jobs that it's, you know, find a job that you love and you'll never work a day for the rest of your life. And that that's, you know, a wonderful situation to be in as a coach. It's also, you know, a completely double-edged sword. The Triathlon Show, 227. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have part two of the interview that I did with David Tilbury Davis. And in this part, we do deviate a bit from what 95% of this podcast is about, which is helping athletes train, race, and perform better in endurance sports. That was definitely the core of last week's interview. So uh, if you missed it, please go back and listen to it. It was a fantastic discussion. This episode is not quite like that. It's uh, more directed or specifically directed to coaches out there. Of course, athletes that might be interested in learning more about some of the behind the scenes of coaching uh, should definitely tune in and listen. David has 25 years of coaching experience, so I can think of nobody better than to discuss these topics than him. So we're really excited to bring this episode, especially for all of you coaches listening. If you missed last episode, I just want to note for context that uh, David is coaching myself uh, so that's why we know each other. If it seems like we know each other better than we should, then that would be the reason. And uh, in addition, I would say that it's uh, I would definitely consider David a mentor for myself as a coach, which made this particular discussion really, really interesting. Hope you find it really valuable as well. We'll get right into it after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Electrolytes is uh, not by any means the exclusive reason for cramping, but it is one of several factors that probably has uh, a significant influence on whether cramps occur or not. And I've noticed this in myself anecdotally in swimming in particular, and that if I go and do a swim in the afternoon after having done a long or hard run in the morning that I tend to get cramps unless I am really, really diligent about uh, rehydrating with electrolytes, actually hydrating with electrolytes uh, during the run if possible, which sometimes it is because I tend to have a long treadmill run on Friday mornings, which is the particular context where my swim cramps tend to occur as well but also rehydrating with a bit of more electrolyte drink in between that run and the swim workout later in the afternoon is something that I found definitely helps me stave off those cramps. And uh, when I do experience cramps, it's probably because I have not, I, I see a clear correlation when I fail to rehydrate properly the way I normally do. That's when those cramps occur. So if you are somebody who is prone to cramps, then electrolytes is uh, an avenue that you should explore. You can find Precision Hydration's product on precisionhydration.com and get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka manufactures wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses. And uh, as I mentioned on last week's episode as well, if you are trying to compensate the 
probably closed pools in many areas of the world at least with some more open water swimming then having a good wetsuit is absolutely a prerequisite for that and in some situations if you are going to try to do it in uh, fairly chilly water temperatures then perhaps it might be possible but in a thermal wetsuit rather than a normal standard wetsuit and roca do offer thermal wetsuits so if that's something that you're considering then uh, check that out you can get 20% off your entire order, not just wetsuits, anything Roka sells on roka.com forward slash TTS. That is where you will get that 20% discount code. Now, without any further ado, let's hear David Tilbury Davis' perspectives on coaching. So welcome back, David, to part two of our discussion. And uh, we will discuss uh, some topics related to coaching on uh, in this part and that the, these are some topics that you kindly outlined that you think are important so uh, we'll just get right into it with first defining success as a coach what are your thoughts around that yeah absolutely i i i think as a coach you know we have a very obvious responsibility to maximize performance at at races but i uh, i've always felt that that's sort of describing what it says on the tin um like i said in the in the previous podcast um if you go to a bank and you ask for some money then you know you expect the bank to have some money not to have you know some carrots and an aubergine for sale so um so as a coach when you know people say um you know uh, my success is defined by the the performances you know that my athletes have then you know that's great you know the the more successes you've had you know the you know that's wonderful you know but the reality is how much of a positive impact have you had on those individuals as as people you know how you know how much has there been you know sort of you know injury and um you know and, and you know um uh, athletes moving on um, those to me are sort of better definitions of success you know if you've been working for many athletes uh, over the years um, and you know you the the, def, the the average time that you spend working with athletes is counted in years rather than sort of weeks then you know that's probably a reflection of the fact that you know you're making a fairly significant and meaningful difference to that individual um you know likewise um if when people move on you know that it's fairly apparent that you know the relationship has been you know more than just you know prescription of training sessions and they you know they you know they tell you that you know you've influenced their perspective on life in a certain way or you know i had a situation recently where you know an athlete said that you know how their fitness and performance had improved had impacted on you know their their sort of you know well-being and and as a consequence their performance in the workplace um that that to me is a much better definition of success yeah that makes a lot of sense and uh, one thing that uh, that i've always remembered for 
a couple of years, I think, since Steve Magnus mentioned it on on his podcast with uh, Jonathan Marcus, is that one, one thing that for him was a, a real benchmark. Obviously, the context is different working face-to-face with uh, collegiate athletes and some post-collegiates. But, but in this context, I think it was collegiate athletes mostly and even high school athletes. Anyway, when, when, when you're invited to one of your athletes' wedding, that's sort of when you know that you've made a really, really meaningful impact in, in the athlete's life. And, and that's meant uh, more than, than any race uh, performances or, or wins or, or victories. And uh, yeah, that always stood out to me as being a really good way to think about, about uh, defining success. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'd agree 100% with that. And I'd say that I've been invited to one wedding. <laughs> in the last few years um yeah. and had probably over a slightly longer period of time had two athletes end up married so um yeah it's That's a good, good. good definition yeah. so yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, next, next on our list we have uh, one more thing on that note by the way you also a thing to take into consideration is that uh, if we define success only by race performances then uh, obviously athletes do have different uh abilities to train time to put into training depending on the life context and also just basic genetic talent also comes into play there so so i guess that uh, can you speak to just do you think about how close you can get the athlete to their potential with the context that they're in and is that something that it's impossible to know of course but but how do you think about that I think I think with time with coaching you get a sense of of an athlete's potential when you know you get glimpses into how they approach certain workouts and you know where their potential and future may lie um but I think yeah absolutely I think if an athlete crossed the finish line you know at their A race and said you know I laid it all out there there wasn't an ounce of me left that I could have put out on that race course and they came away, you know, uh, not in the position that they wanted to be in terms of, you know, outcome um, or not with a, you know, a time that on an outcome basis that they were expecting. Um, then I, you know, I would be, you know, I'd be really happy, but I'd also then start to say, okay, well, you know, was there an issue with the process? Did we... You know, did we get it wrong in terms of, you know, optimizing their ability or actually did we get it right? And actually, you know, on the day, everybody was slow, you know, and, and that's a really common one, particularly with the swim is, um, you know, triathletes, you know, they come out of the water, they look up the clock and they look at the time and they go, well, that was a terrible swim. And then the rest of their day is ruined. But But in the moment, you have absolutely no idea what that means in the context of everybody else's performance. And it might mean that actually, you know, rather than being sort of, you know, 97th percentile performance in, in your age group in that race, that actually you were 99th, but just everybody was slow. Um, so, um, you know, I think there's sometimes a little bit of context to be had. So I try to persuade athletes not to get too, hung up on on outcome um because in essence process you know should deliver outcome yeah and and in the context of of success in terms of uh, 
of outcomes and race performances, not necessarily results in terms of times. I do think that that thing you mentioned with looking at percentiles of your age group or the overall men's or females field, that's a much better way to look at things than, than just pure times because of, of the conditions that may change. Or uh, if you're racing on different courses, that is uh, an obvious one that uh, completely makes comparisons not complete, not irrelevant, but difficult. Yes. And um, yeah, so so and, that's, some, that, that's something that I do for all athletes, looking at the percentile in each in each discipline and, and overall, and see if we're improving in in that regard, at least in races that have large enough fields that you can get significant. Uh, and, and that's where yeah, and, that, and that's absolutely picking up on the point that you made there. That's absolutely where you know certain training devices, you know, actually allow us to understand, you know, was that you know, like a, a personal best performance, you know, rather than, you know, racing on, on feel, you know, sometimes, you know, having a power meter on the bike or, you know, wearing a GPS device on the run, you know, you don't necessarily have to see the data, you know, in terms of power output, you know, if you want to race on feel, but being able to go back and say, okay, yeah, actually that was a really well paced, really well strategically executed race uh, you know that that resulted in a pb performance um you know is it is can only be a positive whereas you know not necessarily taking advantage of any of those things and just coming away and going that was the time when i crossed the line it doesn't it doesn't mean anything you know you um there's all sorts of things that could have gone wrong uh, or right within that part that discipline of the race yeah how do you, by the way, make sure that uh, how you perhaps see success for an athlete is aligned with what they see as success for themselves? Um, I try to get a really good understanding when I'm working with an athlete of what what drives them, what makes what makes uh, it meaningful to them. Um, I think probably some years ago, I probably would have got quite hung up on the differences between, you know. Um, intrinsic motivations so sort of internal ones and extrinsic motivations so you know simplistically something like say what you know what peer recognition is um i tend not to now i actually think that there's you know there's many aspects of people's characters that can that can have both a positive and a negative um side to them so you know for instance like you know narcissism might be an aspect of a of a character that people might look at and say, "Well, that's a really bad thing." And um, yes, there are definitely negative traits to that quality, but there are also some positive traits to that quality. Um, and so, I really try to understand, you know, the individual um, and what you know what their definition of success is. Um, and, and actually, you know, over the winter, I sort of went through a process of you know reviewing. The previous year with individuals and looking ahead and say okay you know outline to me you know what your definition of success is and um and one of them said well um i have to get on the podium because if i get on the podium i get a puppy and um <laughs> uh, and ironically there's actually a professional triathlete um who recently in the last six months you know got a got a dog exactly because of that outcome um and um and so something is you know as as amusing as that you know to understand that as a coach for me to understand the individual to understand what they're sort of emotively connected to 
um, is a very powerful, you know, uh, ability to to strengthen our, our working relationship. Yeah. The next point on our list is uh, creating meaningful work as a coach. I'll let you take yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, coaching is, uh, it's a very unique um, job whereby, you know, it's predicated on a, on a transactional basis. You know, people are paying you to deliver performance. Um, but the flip side of that is it, it has you know, a huge demand to have, um, you know, a, a relationship, you know, sort of on an emotional level, you know, I need to understand them. They need to understand me. Um, I need to, you know, understand, you know, that how they see the world and how they, you know, interpret aspects of communication, um, because they might be 20 years, 30 years younger than me. Um, or they might be, you know, very similar age to me, uh, or they might be from a different culture. Um, so, you know, a, a simplistic example might be I'm English, um, have a tendency to, um, you know, be a little bit sarcastic sometimes and um, and also uh, swear at times. Um, <laughs> not, in the, not in a losing my temper way, but, um, uh, and as a consequence, um, with some individuals, they may not fully grasp the uh, the uh, the humour in in that, and and I need to be respectful of that. So you know, I have I have one athlete that I work with that never swears ever um, in writing verbally, um, but then I've also you know known athletes that um, you know would put uh, a fisherman to shame um, in terms of the. <laughs> <laughs> their uh, their use of language so um as a as a tool of expression so uh, you know i need to it's not as a coach it's not um being disingenuous and being chameleon with your personality it's actually you know mirroring an individual so that you can you know put yourself on their level and 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 that makes it a lot more meaningful when you can put yourself on their level and and actually you know you 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 get a real sense that the athlete um, really values you as an individual, as a person, not not on a monetary basis, but as on, as a person. That makes it a lot more meaningful in in my mind, um, and that can only come through you know developing that coach athlete relationship. Yeah, and uh, one other thing that I guess comes into play here is uh, the communication just things like the frequency of communication because that's something that obviously different coaches have uh, very different models in how that works and uh, for some it might be coaching might be more of writing a program and the athlete goes out and gets on with it but in other situations like with you for example there's definitely an, an emphasis on on having being in communication and uh, and catching uh, catching up on how things are going and, and that sort of thing and uh, i guess that that's also something that you would say contributes to making the relationship meaningful rather than just being yeah it does the transaction of uh, of bringing the athlete to training plan yeah absolutely i mean i think probably the most powerful question you know, you can ask an athlete when you work with them remotely is, you know, how are you? Um, and, you know, some individuals, you know, culturally will go straight into, 
you know, X, Y, Z about training and other cultures are very different. I, I used to work with an athlete from South America who um, he used to make me chuckle because every time I phone him to talk about his training, um, you know, it was, it, it, he had, you know, he was an age grouper. He had a day job. So it was, you know, scheduling calls with time differences was, you know, a little bit difficult sometimes, but then when we catch up, you know, he'd always be like, yeah, you know, what are you up to? You know, how's your wife doing? How's, you know, how, you know, how's things going? How are you feeling? You know, what are you up to? And I'm like, wait, 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 I'm, I'm meant to be the one talking to you about your training. Um, but, but to him, the, 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 the depth and value of our working relationship was predicated on him knowing me as a person and understanding me as a person. And I think as a coach, creating a sort of meaningful coaching relationship also means you know, at times making yourself vulnerable and actually allowing athletes into your life and saying, yeah, this is who I am as a person. You know, this is, you know, uh, I, it, it is important to me, you know, to, you know, have a holiday or, you know, spend time with my family at a weekend um, rather than being 365, 24-7 available on call. Yeah, yeah that make, makes sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, one thing that that got me thinking about is that uh, me being a coach, but also being actively racing, I, I do notice that my athletes they are always very interested to hear about how my training is going, how my racing is going, and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, sometimes the first half of a call may be about uh, talking about how my race went that that I just yeah. had uh, last weekend. So because yeah. they also uh, what they also want to know that you know you have bad days and bad moments and stupid decisions or you know, in the same way, you know, as a coach is, you know, do I, do I have bad days, poor decisions and, you know, am I human? Um, because that creates connection. Absolutely. And they also want to know what you are giving me for training. They're very interested in that. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so well, uh, uh, there's nothing, well, there's no, there's no secrets. No, um, no, there isn't. Yeah. But but it's it's yeah. always an interesting topic for discussion to to see how yeah. different coaches go about things. Um, uh, we mentioned they're working remotely, uh, what, and in the previous episode that we recorded, you mentioned that you do travel to to clients to work face to face as well. How do you view those different ways of coaching, and and even how do you compare the generally remote coaching with somebody who is always or almost always present like having a, a squad of athletes that they work with yeah i mean there's you know there's definitely some contentious coaches out there who say that you know if you're predominantly coaching remotely then you know you know you're not a coach and um feel a need to kind of poo poo that um i think that's you know that you know that's inappropriate i think you know ultimately you know the criticisms of coaching remotely are you know, you may miss, you know, certain interactions or certain behavioral cues that you might see when somebody walks on deck in the morning. Um, but I think, uh, you know, some of that can be overcome with getting the communication right and, you know, making sure that there's, you know, open and honest communication. And, um, you know, and likewise, um, if you're working with somebody remotely, then, that distance can create a level of objectivity and, and a lack of bias when you are being presented with data, when you are being, you know, presented with subjective feedback. Um, you know, you might pick up on certain things, you know, whereas if you're seeing somebody on a day-to-day -day basis, 
you know, you might, you know, create biases or, or actually miss certain things. Good example would be, you know, if somebody that you see on a daily basis is always using a certain, you know, certain phrases in their language about how, you know, the training session was, you know, over a period of time, that very quickly becomes, you know, you, you become blasé about that. You don't really notice it. Whereas when individuals are giving subjective feedback, um, then as a coach, I would say remotely, you you start to pick up on people using, you know, the same phrase or the same word regularly. And, and you start to think, mm, you know, maybe I need to take that on board. Um, simplistically, something like, you know, you know, wow, you know, tired. Um, I mean, that's a really basic one, but um, there's definitely um, things that you can spot when you work remotely and there's things that you miss out on. And I think also when you work face-to-face, there's a lot that you pick up on, but there's a lot that you can also um, become biased about or or you can get very acute in your decision-making because you, you, you know, you lack the distance and objectivity. How big of a benefit is it in terms of uh, just the biomechanical development of an athlete, swim technique, run technique, and uh, and even just adjusting sessions on the fly to be able to uh, to be present with uh, with the athlete when they're doing their their sessions? How how much do you miss doing that from from time to time when when you can't do that as a remote coach? I definitely miss it. And is it, is it beneficial? You know, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, you know, I would not disagree with that in the slightest. Um, you know, being able to, to see somebody swimming and give them feedback in real time is good. But then also you need to remember when you are giving them feedback in real time that, you know, you don't want to overload them every day with, oh, you know, think about this with your swim stroke. Think about this with your swim stroke. Think about this with your swim stroke. I think, you know, when I see video footage, when people send me video footage um, and we pick out certain things, then, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that, you know, I only really want to give them one or two cues to go away and work on because otherwise they're just constantly overloaded with sort of um, mental stimulus that they that they have to work through. Um, and that's where, you know, going back to kind of, you know, just getting the basics right, keeping it simple. Um, is is pretty key yeah and uh, we we know from the professional world of course in triathlon that you can become a world champion by by being in a remote coaching relationship so so i think that pooping yeah. that role is uh, definitely as you say it's uh, it's not something that that there's yeah there, there's no case for doing that it, it just works no there's no run white there's no one right answer uh, i think you know, it depends is the answer. Some athletes do very well um, with remote coaching. Other athletes do very well with face-to-face coaching. And yeah, in, in a perfect world, I would, you know, have um, a completely unfettered mix of that as and when I see fit. But, um, you know, the reality is, you know, with many athletes in many different parts of the world, that's not always the case. And, and ironically, I've, I've definitely had conversations with professional athletes who, you know, have a really good setup at home. You know, they've got a good routine. 
they've got you know this this particular pool down the road they've got this particular running track nearby you know they've got their setup at home you know they've got their local supermarket they like to use they're sleeping in their own bed they're using their own pillow and and then when you say to them you know we're going to do these training camps and you know actually the response is a little negative because they're they're creatures of habit and they like routine and and so when you when you take them out of that environment you know there's a risk that actually you create more stress um you know the, the flip side of that is is you could create a lot of positive stimulus um by actually taking somebody out of a very chaotic environment um and putting them into a sort of a very monastic existence absolutely yeah i think it's fair to say that uh, both being an athlete whether it's professional or or just a, an age group athlete with that's trying to juggle a job a family perhaps but also being a coach uh, with uh, the way that coaching works it's uh, never really off it never really stops it's uh, bo- both are kind of extreme endeavors in in kind of different ways so yes. mental health is something that uh, that is important to consider. What what do you think about about mental health think, for athletes and coaches? I, I, I think it's a hugely important topic. Um, you know, Dean Carnassus wrote in one of his books that Dean Carnassus, for people who don't know, was a, a quite a famous ultra runner. And in one of his books, you know, somebody in in one of the chapters that was sort of involved um, with endurance athletes um, said, you know, if we if we weren't if we weren't doing ultra running, um, we'd probably all be alcoholics. Um, there's definitely yeah. there's definitely an, an addictive nature to you know people looking to be the best that they're capable of being, and and there's also um, at the very pointy end, there's also a, a pretty significant level of anxiety, um, and that may be internalized um, to manage because there's a persistent dissatisfaction at performance. Um, and that's exactly why when, when athletes move on from their sport, it leaves a huge vacuum. You know, even if they've achieved, um, the things that they wanted to achieve, um, the, the reality is, is that, um, probably north of 90% of athletes, when they do step down from being a professional athlete or being, you know, a world-class age group athlete, when they do step down from that, they don't get to step down on their own terms and and that you know is a, a huge leaves a huge mental toll and and so for me as a coach i think it's important to you know help the athlete manage the context of where sport sits uh in them in terms of their identity um but also in terms of societally you know identity um and um and and help them understand that um whilst this particular performance is you know is incredible within the small community that we operate in um in the grand scheme of things you know it's it's not that meaningful um and that's not to belittle their achievement it's simply to say okay well you know actually what you're better off doing is understanding the qualities that this is created in you and how that can you know play out positively within a broader community 
Yeah, that's a, a really interesting perspective. I, I really, uh, really like that. Um, what are some issues that you that you see that athletes might have, whether it be a, a constant dissatisfaction with performance, perhaps not even in racing, but through the day-to-day grind of training uh, and many other things that you see? And how do you think that athletes should manage them and how should coaches help manage uh, those things that, that come up? I think there's two aspects to that. I think the first is, um, you know, being very, very honest and very clear with people about um, that that failure is not a bad thing. Um, that if you don't achieve, you know, the goal that you set out to achieve, that you know that that's not a bad thing. That can actually help make you a better person. Um, I also think. Um, that um, in the day and age that we live in, that there is sort of body dysmorphia issues that arise out of perception of, you know, what an athlete should look like and, um, you know, based on, you know, what we see in the media and, you know, managing that, you know, appropriately as a coach, I think is really important. I think, you know, I'm clearly male as a coach and as a, dealing with female athletes you know i'm not uncomfortable you know on the subject of 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 weight or body image um i tried to be as respectful of people's opinions about that um but uh i think it's a topic that you know we also need to be very open and honest about that society has created these ideas of you know what athletes should look like or you know uh what uh what their lifestyle should be like and uh, i i think being able to be comfortable having discussions around that is is a healthy thing and and maybe if it gets into a an, an area that is beyond my sort of duty of care then that's where you know being able to introduce um athletes to you know more specialist individuals whether it's a sports psychologist or whether it's a, a you know a nutritionist or a dietitian um, is also where I you know should be ensuring I have the sort of communication skill set to uh, position that appropriately. And what about for for the coaches, uh, considering that it is such a almost constantly on occupation? How how can we? Make sure that we prevent things like burnout. I think would be one of the the most common uh, mental illnesses that uh, that affect coaches. Uh, but probably, yeah, I, I think I, I think first and foremost is you know actually having your athletes you know understand or as an athlete you know take the time to understand you know why why your coach finds the job that they do meaningful and be you know and also be respectful of the fact that you know they do have a life as as well um i think you know ensuring that my athletes understand that you know i have you know responsibilities as a you know as a member of a family or a parent um you know is is important um i think having you know mentors as a coach and 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 that doesn't have to be a mentor that's more knowledgeable or more experienced you know, it can be a peer, it can be somebody that's in a different sport, it can be somebody that is even within industry and, and just a leader within industry. 
and actually having somebody that you can turn to and have kind of candid conversations around, um, you know, am, am I, you know, when I think this and, you know, I'm concerned about this, am I going crazy or, you know, actually is that normal? Um, because the reality is, is that most people in a position of, you know, leadership or influence, you know, suffer the same, um, you know, same things. And uh, and what are some things that you've found helpful in uh, creating a work-life balance other than having that understanding from athletes? But, uh, but have you found it difficult for yourself to actually just internalize yourself what, uh, how to do that perhaps well you've been in this long enough that that i imagine yeah. that there's some good 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 ideas now how it works but maybe early on it was uh, a bigger problem i know that certainly i still struggle with that uh, quite a lot so i, uh, very I think your thoughts. yeah i think coaching is one of those jobs that it's you know find a job that you love and you'll never work a day for the rest of your life and that that's you know a wonderful situation to be in as a coach it's also you know a completely double-edged sword um and you know, you, you know, you love, you know, helping people be better people, better athletes. And, and there's a lot of vicarious satisfaction from that. Um, and drawing the line is, is really, really important. You know, there was a study done recently of, um, a whole bunch of Olympic coaches, um, within UK sport at at an, an Olympic level. And, probably one of the biggest things that stood out is that they were all terrible at work-life balance and you know some of them had you know it cost them relationships or marriages um and i and i think that's uh, you know we need to be open and honest about that as coaches and say to athletes you know what you know this is a you know a particular time of day that i'm not going to be able to have a conversation with you and people might look at that and go you know, well, that seems fairly obvious, but unless you work in, you know, unless you work as a, as a coach or you have experience as a coach, you know, it's difficult to grasp that, you know, we can create these situations where, um, we feel a need to be, you know, constantly connected or constantly responding, uh, to athletes, particularly when we work across different time zones, um, uh, and uh and it, that becomes like a second nature um and it's not healthy you know you have to step back from that and turn around to athletes and say yeah actually hang on a minute but you know understand this and the reality is in most situations they go oh yeah no that's fine <laughs> um um so, so you just have to set set some boundaries for yourself in ter- terms of yeah. when you when you're turning off the phone and, yeah. and so on. Yeah, absolutely, and also not get hung up on those boundaries because you know nobody died and no children were kidnapped, so it's kind of really not that big a deal. Yeah, right. Um, then we have uh, a point on data versus uh, RPE. So, what what do you want to talk about there? Yeah, I, I think we we touched on that um earlier around um there's value in both um i think again when you know as a community of coaches there are people trying to sort of say you know perception of effort is the most important thing and other people like no no no, you know data is the most important thing it's like let's not get hung up on um particular metrics or you know that everything has to be by feel 
you know, the reality is, as a as a coach, you know, we we need to be held accountable um, for you know the quality of service that we deliver, um, and so we have to use um, ways of of doing that. You know, whether you know whether an athlete you know feels a need for it or not. Um, you know, ultimately, all of these training devices, you know, GPS, power, you know, all these, all these things are, you know, they're, they're simply there to train the supercomputer that sits between the ears. You know, they're not, you're not a slave to them. Um, you know, if you are, you're sort of coming at it the wrong way. You know, they're, they're educative tools. Um, and sometimes they tell us things that, you know, we don't want to hear. Um, you know, I've had situations with athletes where they said, yeah, you know, I thought the, you know, I thought that race went really well, but I just don't get why my run, you know, didn't go the way I wanted it to. And then, you know, we look at the bike and we see that actually the pacing was really stochastic and they go, well, it didn't feel like that. Well, I know it didn't feel like that, but the reality is it was. Um, and, and so I think there's a place for both um, because also, you know, with, with perception of effort, you can also have athletes that, you know, have a very particular um, predilection for, you know, certain types of training. And so when they do do certain types of training, you know, the feedback is, you know, biased towards the negative side and they do other types of training and it's biased towards the positive side. And so, you know, as a coach, it's important to contextualize that and say, you know, is that a fair assessment or is it an unfair assessment? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. That uh, yeah, to to kind of get to the biases that we all have, then the data can be can be really helpful in uh, in in finding them in the first place and then, then addressing them. One of one of the most useful things I keep to hand is is actually a, a long list of different types of biases, and and, it, and it's always useful to look back at it as a coach and say, oh yeah, actually yeah, you know this. Um, you know, this is some, a trap that, you know, we can fall into and this is a trap that we can fall into. Um, you know, it just helps uh, keep things on track. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Uh, and you sent it to me some time ago and, and I really enjoy reviewing that every now and then as well. Um, uh, in, in terms of the, this is perhaps something that relates a bit more to what we discussed in the last episode with workout prescription, but also to how to, make sure that the the athlete sort of is uh, is not getting dissatisfied constantly dissatisfied and with their performance in training do you think about setting the athlete up for success in some way by 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 the way that you design the sessions uh, is that something that comes into play a lot or uh, how yeah how do you think about about that basically what i mean is perhaps by prescribing a range of intervals that they can choose in depending on how they feel or a large enough range of a target intensity that you know that they will at least be able to hit the lower end and they will be happy with that or, or how do you think about that yeah i think i think there's an i think within some of the workouts that i give there's definitely it's it's implicit there's certain workouts that i would give somebody where they have the opportunity to you know to grow and and uh, and, and other workouts where you know it's significantly outside their comfort zone um i think you know it's it's not it's not carrot and stick but it's there's definitely 
uh, it's more nurturing somebody along in particular workouts. You know, I've had athletes, an athlete I spoke to in the last few days said, you know, wow, you know, those, you know, those workouts, uh, you know, we've, we've done on Friday, you know, the last couple of weeks, you know, I, when I first looked at them, I, I thought, you know, he must be, he must be out of his mind, you know, thinking that I can hit that, you know, and actually, um, you know, they were able to do it. And it's not that I'm, you know, some grand wizard. It's, it's just sometimes you need to take people a little bit outside of their comfort, comfort zone and, and give them the opportunity to, to shine. And other times you do need to, you know, create, you know, almost like a workout where, you know, they are going to fail. There is no, there is no not failing because there's also a learning mechanism within that. Um, or there's a physiological benefit to that. And as long as you position that with the athlete appropriately beforehand and say, look, you know, we're going to do this particular workout and, um, you know, I don't have an expectation of how many intervals you get done. You know, it's up to you to sort of do what you feel is the best that you're capable of doing on the day. Then that helps people understand that they just need to give it their best. Um, and that may vary week to week. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. And uh, then we have the topic of doping. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Um, when, when, when do we have the next dose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it exists. Um, I mean, you know, there's not, you know, I'm not going to sit here and make accusations. Um, I think, you know, we, when we look at humanity, in and of itself and you know we look at research that's been done in um in you know uh, education environments where there's a very high level of reward for success um then there's you know there's definitely evidence that probably one in ten people will will resort to behavioral patterns that you know would be constituted as cheating um and i don't think that's an unreasonable perspective to take you know within within our sport now you know that that depends on your definition of cheating you know it may be you know drafting you know that's a very simple one um or it might be you know blood doping which is very definitely the other end of the spectrum um i, I think you know anti-doping establishments have a really really hard job to do um because um there are um, definitely, um, things that athletes can do, um, that are very easy to do that are very unlikely to be picked up in the current anti-doping environment. And, uh, yes, of course, I, I would love to see significantly more anti-doping, um, behaviors expressed by, um, race organizations. Um, but I also understand that, that you know that costs a significant amount and um you know current situation aside you know it's not a bottomless pit of money that they can throw at this um and, and i think that you know certainly within our sport there is also you know the issue of conflicts of interest within you know um some you know some events may not want to have you know the outcome of their race overshadowed um by something uh that they find out later um 
but it's a pity um and i'd like to see that change um you know i'm not in a position of power to make that change happen but it would be nice to see to see that evolve um because there are always going to be individuals that you know will take uh, a path of least resistance you know rather than do the work rather than work on you know sleep nutrition you know training approaches recovery strategies they'll you know they'll take the easy route you know that's evident in pretty much every sport that exists yeah yeah and unfortunately it's not just at the professional level it also happens at age group level yeah absolutely and um you know there are definitely practices you know we live in a day and age where you know there are also certain practices which fall into kind of like a gray area um and that's a really hard one um you know if somebody suffers from you know uh, asthma and and allergies significantly you know to the point that you know as a professional athlete you know you get an attack and you know you can barely walk at 10 minute mile pace um you know then you know clearly that person needs to be doing something about it um in order for them you know to do what they want to do is that is that cheating is that doping um you know i don't think it is um if somebody has a you know a a thyroid condition you know that requires medication um you know taking medication so that they can be a healthy individual they cannot put themselves at risk is that is that doping no but i think when you step over a line and you get into the situation of people manipulating dosages in order to elicit certain responses physiologically yes that's clearly doping you know um taking more of certain things or less of certain things to game the system is is clearly you know an ethical behavioral pattern which would classify as doping in my book mm, yeah so the final question before we wrap up here and this one is not on on our list but i want to ask you to give two or three pieces of advice that uh, coaches listening to this could benefit from Oof, wow um I think probably the first one would be, um, you know, really try to understand your athletes as people uh, and not as athletes. That's the first one. Um, and I think the second one is also try not to be too hard on yourselves. That's, um, you know, the reality of coaching is, is, is that um, we, you know, we, you know, we exhibit the same behavioral patterns as, as, you know, top performing athletes. You know, we have a, a persistent dissatisfaction with, you know, are we doing things, you know, well enough? Are we paying attention to enough details? Have I, you know, have I paid attention to enough, you know, relevant factors? You know, did I miss something? You know, sometimes shit happens, as they say, and, you know, you need to, kind of just roll with that um and so i think i would say you know try not to to be too hard on yourselves at times yeah that's good advice so finally where can people follow you find out uh what you're up to and uh yeah any social media websites etc that you mm-hmm. want to mention yeah i'm i'm fairly easy to follow as coach tilbers on instagram 
Um, and my website is www.tilbydavis.com. I tend to put um, up there um, sort of some of the sort of media bits of information. Um, and that, that's, that's about as exciting as it gets. Um, I tend, you know, I'm, I'm not um, a big one for social media. Um, but, you know, um, working with, you know, working with Lionel at the moment, um, there's also, you know, I, I've been in a few of the YouTube videos recently, so, um, that was a whole new, whole new world, um, for me. But anyway, that's, yeah, that, that, that's some of the sort of insight into sort of what I do and who I work with that people can get. Yeah. And, uh, we'll have that linked in the show notes. So thank you so much david for taking the time to do this long two-part interview and uh, my pleasure pleasure talking to you and i'll let you get back to your day and and uh see that your athletes your wife and your your little boy are all doing all right thanks hope that you enjoyed that episode you can find the show notes on that if you missed last week's episode, David's Perspectives on Training, then definitely go and check that out on the website or in your podcast app. And also, as mentioned, if you're interested in finding out more about David, we'll have links to his website and his social media and uh, that sort of stuff on the show notes and the podcast episode description. Next Monday, I interview Dr. Bradford Cooper on the topic of functional mental toughness. And in the last couple of months, we've had a lot of talk about training. I have found these discussions with the really high-level coaches super fascinating, interesting, and I know that you have as well from the feedback I've been getting. And uh, obviously, training is the bread and butter for any triathlon performers podcast uh, like that triathlon show. But that being said, it will be good to have a slightly different angle next week with uh, the functional mental toughness topic that we have in store Brad is very knowledgeable and a great speaker and teacher as well, I found when I interviewed him. So I'm sure that you will enjoy that episode a lot. So stay tuned, stay subscribed. This episode was one about coaching and uh, you may be a coach, but if you're an athlete and you're listening this far and you are looking for a coach, uh, of course, I would highly recommend reaching out to David. But I do know that his waiting list is pretty long. So an additional great option, in my highly biased opinion, is uh, the coaching here at Scientific Triathlon. We do have some slots available right away. So check out our coaching page on scientifictriathlon.com if you want to learn more. And send me an email email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com, which is Michael with a K, if you're interested in setting up a conversation or learn more. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. You can get a personalized hydration strategy for your next race on the free hydration plan tab. And I will also give you an idea of a good estimate of what your sweat sodium concentration is, which can be very useful information, not just in racing, but also in day-to-day training. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. On that page, you'll get a 20% discount for your entire order, whether you're looking for wetsuits, trisuits, swim skins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, or prescription glasses and sunglasses. Uh, it's valid, so uh, take that opportunity. 
Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon. <laughs>